we need to change the values of our people to place premium on integrity, on competence rather than on money. What we have are merely self-seeking leaders who have no vision and have no interest in developing their countries or in, in, in the welfare of the people they pretend to lead. You are listening to Think African, a seasonal podcast engaging African thinkers and doers on what it means to think African. I'm your host, J.D. Ramalab. The global outbreak of COVID-19 has seen leaders around the world use the pandemic to strengthen their grip over people and their freedoms. In some cases, citizens who resisted the restrictions have been met by deadly force. The violence became so endemic, the United Nations warned governments not to use toxic lockdown measures to squash dissent, control the population, or perpetuate their time in power. Here's the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. The COVID-19 pandemic is causing untold human suffering and economic devastation around the world. I recently called for an immediate global ceasefire to focus on our shared struggle to overcome the pandemic. I appealed for an end to violence everywhere now. But violence is not confined to the battlefield. For many women and girls, the threat looms largest where they should be safest, in their own homes. But for people who live in countries where the rule of law was already absent or weakened, COVID-19 and its subsequent restrictions have only served to highlight inequality. Here in South Africa, this week's rampant looting, violence and lawlessness in reaction to former President Jacob Zuma's arrest for being in contempt of court is one such example. The violence reflects a more deep-seated problem where a third wave of COVID-19 outbreaks and lockdowns is exacerbating the country's already fragile economy, with the poorest people being worst affected. South Africa's port city of Durban has borne the brunt of the ongoing unrest with 45,000 businesses out of commission and an estimated 16 billion in stolen stock and damage to infrastructure and equipment. The frenzy of looting and destruction of harbors, warehouses, gas depots, hospitals, malls and trucks has run along the country's main economic corridor from Durban to Johannesburg. More than 70 people have been killed in the mayhem. It is looting that is taking place below us and it's been going on for hours on end. There's absolute lawlessness here, Clement, as you've been seeing. Now, with the country in chaos, a number of community members have taken up arms to protect their properties while other residents desperately stockpile food and fuel. And doctors warn COVID-19 cases could rise as hospitals and vaccination sites are shuttered. It's the worst level of lawlessness and destruction South Africa has seen in 40 years. The government has called it economic sabotage. But while the riots may have been triggered by the arrest of Zuma, the anger is rooted in years of frustration over a government who hasn't been able to provide for its people. And where the effects of the pandemic have shone a new spotlight on South Africa, which the World Bank describes as a nation with the highest levels of inequality globally. 
Violence in South Africa will have implications for neighboring countries such as Lesotho, Swaziland, Zimbabwe and others who depend on it for food and fuel imports. These scenes are not very different to those seen last year during the NSARS protests in Nigeria, which is the focus of our podcast today. For people who have not been to Nigeria, it may be shocking to discover the level of tyranny Nigerian citizens have had to face in an African country known to be operating under a so-called democratic government. So when the Nigerian government put an indefinite ban on Twitter after the microblogging site deleted Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari's tweets, warning of a potential repeat of the 1967 Biafran civil war, it raised many alarms. The Twitter ban has many people worried that Nigeria could be slipping into a dictatorship. In this week's episode of Think African, we ask, are African democracies in peril? We speak to Okwachuku Nwanguma, the Executive Director of the Rule of Law and Accountability Advocacy Center, or RULAC. It's an organization that promotes justice for victims of human rights violations and police brutality in Nigeria. Okwachuku Nwanguma comes from the southeastern part of Nigeria in Imo State. He graduated in philosophy from the University of Nigeria in 1992 and has been working in the Human Rights and Civil Liberties Advocacy Center since 1995. And then I later worked in the Southeast Zone as Zonal Coordinator for Civil Liberties Organization up to 2008 when I went for a fellowship in Washington, D.C. with the National Endowment for Democracy where I um, researched on police reform in Nigeria. Upon coming back to Nigeria after the fellowship, I joined the network on police reform in Nigeria. I worked there for 13 years before 2018 when I, I started with the rule of law and accountability advocacy center. All my time in the human rights movement, I've been focusing on monitoring and documenting human rights violations in the context of, context of law enforcement. So that by the time one of Nigeria's top musicians, Burner Boy, released a song calling out the Nigerian government for killing people during the NSARS protest, Okwachuku Nyanguma has spent his entire adult life lobbying for long overdue police reforms in the country. It turns out that the Police Act 2020 was uh, passed by the National Assembly, the House of Representatives and the Senate respectively in June and July 2020 and then accented to by the President in August, shortly before the commencement of the NSAS protest. But the passage of this uh, Police Act was a momentous development. It was a long-drawn struggle in the effort to review the Colonial Police Act. Wait, what? Nigeria never changed its policing laws since independence? After independence, Nigeria's democracy was interrupted, you know, intermittently by military rule. Most part of Nigeria's post-independence period has been, you know, under 
military rule, which ran the police the same way the colonial authorities ran, you know, the police, used the police basically as a tool of, of repression. In 1959, Nigeria held its first democratic parliamentary elections shortly after gaining independence from British rule. These elections were followed by a series of military coups until multi-party democratic elections were held in February 1999. But the president-elect of that time, Olosajun Obasanjo, could not change the laws either. We think also that it is because Successive administrations prefer to leave the police in the form they are so that it is easy for them to use them for self-serving purposes. For example, rigging elections, you know, harassing political opponents. So if you have a reformed police with an inspector general of police that has operational autonomy, that has security of tenure and that is able to resist unlawful Directives. It would be difficult to use such a police force. So that is why we think that the successive administrations prefer to leave the police the way it is, to be able to use them for their own political ends. This does not mean that Nigerian lawmakers did not try to change police laws inherited from colonial masters. After Nigeria turned to civil rule in 1999, there have been several committees set up to review the laws and advise successive governments on ways to reform the police. For example, in, in 2006, we had the first uh, government committee that was set up under President o o Obasanjo, who, who assumed power after nearly 17 years of uninterrupted military rule. That committee went around the country, you know, organized public hearings, received memoranda from different stakeholders, and came up with a good report and recommendations. But the government didn't have the will to implement those recommendations. Two years later, in 2008, when something happened again, the president then, who was um, Yaradua, instead of going back to the report of the panels you know, that were set up under the previous administration, decided to set up a similar committee, which went around and did exactly the same thing and came up with a different set of reports, which were also shelved rather than being implemented. In 2012, President Goodluck Jonathan also decided to set up another panel. So what we find is that setting up committees or panels on police reform became an avenue for patronage to give job to government uh, acolytes and uh, supporters. It was, it was a pretext to evade responsibility. There was no political will to implement far-reaching you know, police reform. This pattern of broken promises persisted even during the NSARS protests, which were sparked by widespread police brutality, killings, extortions, and all manner of criminal acts. Imagine being randomly stopped and picked up by the police, not because you've done anything wrong, but because the officers want to take you to an ATM to empty your bank account. And of course, you know that the immediate trigger to this NSAS violence was also a, a video showing SARS operatives who shot a young man and stole his car. Now, government has made some promises. But of course, Nigerians, because of their experience with past governments, experience of betrayal, experience of lies, experience of making promises that were never kept. That was why those who were involved in that protest refused to back down in spite of the promises that government made. 
Nanguma says the NSAS protests, which coincided with the passing of the new police act, is a positive step in the right direction for Nigeria. What has happened is that for a long time, the Nigerian youths have re- had remained passive. So what happened was for us like a renewal of consciousness, a new consciousness among the Nigerian youth. And I think that this momentum needs to be sustained and translate this movement into a political movement that can seek for power to, you know, to seize power from the old positions that have no vision, that lack, you know, patriotism, that have no intention of seeing to the, the progress and the development of, of this country. The future of this country lies in the hands of these youths who have, you know, taken to the streets to protest against police brutality. And I think that they should take this movement turn it into a political movement and ensure that in the next election that only people elected by, by, by Nigerians will take over the reins of, of power in this country. Even though the new bill tries to protect the public from lawless police officers, the fact that the president is still the only person who can appoint the chief of police remains a challenge for police reform in the country. The Lord could not address one fundamental area which has to do with the appointment of the Inspector General of Police, which is very important if we want to depoliticize the police. The situation is still, it is still such that the President can appoint and can fire the Inspector General of Police, which for us was one of the areas that we wanted to change, but we couldn't go that far because if we had insisted, the, the law would not have, you know, passed. Nyonguma is not new to protests. Having started his activism as a member of the Association for Nigerian Students who organized protests against oppression by university authorities, he also campaigned regularly against the apartheid regime in South Africa. Even then, their stand was met with police brutality. Because of this, Nyonguma understands that change will not happen overnight. Police brutality is, is a tool a tool by which the ruling powers, you know, try to suppress opposition. It's not something that will end in, in a short time, but it's, 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 a, it's a process. What you see in Nigeria is that there is a recycling of the same old people in the you know, political space. Let's even start by trying to have a new set of people in the political space and see how that can bring any change. But of course, that's not going to be the, the, the ultimate answer to the problem. But it's for me, it's a start. And when, as we move on, we are, we are going to see other opportunities, other openings that can be explored to bring the, the change that, that we desire in Nigeria, which neither the PDP or the APC can, can bring to this country. A lot lies in the hands of the youth who constitute the majority. For decades, pre-colonial African societies were believed to be lawless. As such, no credit was given to African legal systems, which are commonly known as customary or indigenous laws today. Because thinking African was considered to be uncivilized, only Western laws and thought were deemed to be able to lead Africa into modernity, democracy, and respect for human rights. 
they must be the most contented people in the world. They have no crime, no punishment, no violence, no laws, no police, judges, rulers or bosses. An idea subtly re-entrenched in almost every facet of modern African life, including in entertainment films such as South Africa's 1980s popular comedy film, The Gods Must Be Crazy. In the deep Kalahari, there are Bushmen who have never seen or heard of civilized men. Sometimes they hear a thundering sound when there are no clouds in the sky, and they assume that the gods have eaten too much again, and their tummies are rumbling up there. Sometimes they can even see the evidence of the gods' flatulence. However, disregarding pre-colonial African knowledge systems has come at a huge cost to the African population. In Nigeria, for example, and in, in most other traditional African societies, I know about the eight grades, you know, the, the different types of groups were involved in, in, in pollution. And these were devoid of the usual violence and brutality that we see in modern pollution. So it means that Africa, contrary to what um, some imperialists want to portray, was not just... Um, without any ideas about governance, about how to govern themselves, or how to, to develop. So it means that we need to also think back to those traditional African ways of, of, of doing things. Of course, modern de democracy is not completely alien to the, the, the traditional African democracy. So I, I think that while we continue to follow the modern ways of doing things, we should also try to look, look back. For instance, in looking for ways to address the problem of police brutality, I think we need to also look back and see what can we take from the traditional ways of policing, which for me was basically community, community involvement. Community was involved in policing themselves. The police was not alienated as it is in in modern police system. As police brutality intensified under COVID-19 restrictions throughout the world, so did calls for more women to take up leadership positions. Can women leaders limit state-sponsored violence? In other words, are African countries, or Nigeria in particular, ready for a government based on feminist ideologies? Well, you see, part of the problem of our underdevelopment is also the exclusion of women in politics and decision-making. And this, for me, is basically a fallout of uh, cultural prejudices that we need to address frontally. If you look at what happened during this NSAS uh, protest, why it, it seemed to have been so well organized and lasted as long as it did was because the leaders were basically women a group called the, the Feminist Group. And that, that, for me, explained the success. So it had a decentralized leadership. So it made it difficult for the, the leaders to be co-opted or for opportunists to infiltrate the movement. That is a testimony to what women can do when they are involved in, in, in politics. And I think that as long as we continue to exclude a significant population of our uh, in society, which is women. Uh, so long shall we continue to, to grope in the dark. Women have a lot of role to play, even in, in conflicts. The approach that women take in resolving conflicts is actually different. So I think that we need to provide a space for women to continue to participate in politics and in decision making. What the role they played in this instance for me is one way to illustrate 
why it is important for women to be given sp- space to participate in, in governance. Which African thinker, philosopher, writer, inventor, and academic do you most admire and why? Well, um, I listen to Professor Mulumba a lot. Mulumba is from um, Kenya, quite an inspiring leader, even though, as you know, he also aspired for leadership in his country, but he couldn't win because he didn't have money. And this is one of those problems, those challenges that I think we need to address. You know, we need to change the values of our people to place to place premium on integrity, on competence rather than on money. What we have are merely self-seeking, you know, um, self-seeking leaders who have no vision and have no interest in developing in, in developing their countries or in, in in the welfare of the people they, they pretend to lead. So we need to listen to people like. Professor Mulumba, who keeps, you know, um, providing guide on what, how democracy can work for us, how African countries can develop by Africans. And it requires visionary, patriotic leaders, you know, who understand what democracy means and how to develop their various countries. That's all we have time for on Think African this week. Next time, we will speak to a lawyer who changed the lives of school-going girls in Sierra Leone. What was really shocking for me when I was doing this research and working with Sierra Leone activists was just to hear how deep-rooted these prejudices were. I mean, women and men would say things like, if my girl goes to school with a girl who's pregnant, it will encourage her to get pregnant. Until then, merci, obrigado, gracias, shukran, asante sana, baya danki. Thank you. Thank you for listening. See you, Bonga.